Hey everybody, thanks for coming to another episode of Adventures in Angular. I'm the host, Aaron Frost, and on our panel we have Brian Love. Hello. In Europe, in Wales. Wales. I'm in Wales, and I should say, as the Welsh say, hi hi. Hi hi. Hi hi. That's what they said to me. Hi <laughs> hi. All right, that's cool. Um, all right, and then that's all on the panel. Today we're panel light, right? It's a lot of pressure on Brian. That is. That's a lot. So of we can do this though. All right. For our guests, we got Tomas. Hello. You want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, sure. So hi everyone. My name is Tomas Tran, and yeah, I'm a, a Google developer expert for Angular, contracting in Switzerland, working on open source, writing blog posts, training Angular stuff like this. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. How'd you say your last name? Tragan? Tragan. But actually, it's not my real name. It's just like the online. <laughs> oh. No. Yo. Yo. I didn't know you had a pseudonym. Yeah, yeah. It's like it was like very long time ago, like when I was creating like my first Gmail account. And then somehow like I created all the accounts based on that. And I was kind of too late to switch it back. So I kind of stick with it. So uh, what's your real name? Uh, it's Tomasz Herich. Herich? Okay. Herich. Yeah. Herich, where's that from? Basically, it sounds German, but like I'm from Slovakia. Okay, like in, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. In the Middle Ages, there were actually like a lot of German like uh, migrants into those areas, which is now in Slovakia, because there was like a lot of like silver mines and stuff like this. And also, there was like this Black Plague, you know, which killed like three quarters of Europe, and then kind of it was like all empty, so they were like running around and like repopulating. So there is. <laughs> hey. Know, Let's go over there, repopulate. <laughs> Oi. Oi. <laughs> go back west. Let's go back to the west. We went too far east. Yeah, now I'm coming back. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> that's right. funny. All right, well, Herrick. Oh, that's easier. Herrick. 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 Uh, let's, let's not confuse the people. It's the triumph. It's the forever. It's okay. <laughs> so you're kind of an expert on Angular elements, right? Like our web component things with Angular. Yeah, well, I not, would not say like expert, but let's say I spent like quite some time lately like working with elements and like trying to figure out like how to use them the best way and stuff like this, right? Brian, do you yeah. think he's an expert? You know, he looks like an expert. I mean, he looks pretty serious. Yeah, I'm going to say I think you're an expert. I don't think many people have done a lot with uh, with web components and stuff, so... If yeah. you spend a serious amount of time, I think that you qualify as an expert. It was like back when jQuery started, I had dorked around with it for like two months and people were like, oh, a, a gentleman is an expert. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good metaphor. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you're kind of the Angular Elements expert for right now. 
And I for right now, that's a very good designation, like for right now, for this, <laughs> very yeah. sure. But anyway, like, I, I think it's like, popular, right? yeah, yeah, because it can, the thing is like, it can really solve like some, some use cases and some problems which are like very hard to solve the otherwise, let's say. So they can be pretty useful in those kind of situations. What are some of those situations that you, you're using any your elements for? Yeah, right. So, so the thing is, like, I mean, if you if you work in like a huge enterprise organization with tens of developers, or let's say tens of teams and hundreds of developers, then usually you have a couple of options, right? So either you are building like some crazy monolith, and that most people and organization realize that this doesn't really go anywhere. Or maybe you go like very fancy and like you go for like a monorepo as I was listening actually this morning to a podcast with Victor Saukin, actually the adventures in Angular about monorepo and many people do that. But that is kind of like also like this third way where you can go like for kind of, I call it like multi-spa. So you have, let's say 20, 50, or even like us 80 plus applications and they kind of look the same and they are basically integrated using a standard HTML hyperlinks. And if they are like fast enough, then for user, it can be pretty seamless experience, right? So you do one flow in one and then the other in another one and you continue here and there and it all kind of works. But usually in case of this kind of solution, like a multi-spa, it happens to be so that there are like some components which are reused across many of those spas, right? So let's say, let's imagine like... Uh, some document dossier where you need like to browse some documents for like the case or something like this. So, and then these kind of reusable components or like kind of sub-applications are usually implemented using like a library, like a standard Angular library. So you can do it nowadays with Angular CLI, you have ng-packager, you have a great build, everything is amazing. And I mean, you can have like even a very good uh, CI pipeline. So basically whenever you release a new version of the library, it can trigger like a build of all the consumers. So you basically rebuild all these spas and maybe you even deploy them into like some test environment. But I highly doubt that all these organizations can continuously like deliver every of those apps like to the prod like with every little change. So usually some of the newer apps, they, they go like straight through, but like there is always like some legacy, maybe like some hybrid apps. It's not like the Greenfield if it's like some big organization which exists for like a decades. So in that case, what can happen is that some of those consumers' application of that library will not be deployed and you will get multiple versions of that library in the prod, which may or may not cause problems depending on the APIs and so on and so on, like let's say, or complicate your backend dramatically because it has to support multiple versions of like the, the API to retrieve the data because this library could not have been like released properly. Or even if you have, let's say, like some state synchronization between those spas, like because of that component, this can cause serious problems because if the component uh, or like the state which is hot changes, it will not be compatible and stuff like this. So these are like some real life problems which are encountered in this kind of organizations. And this can be really solved with elements. So it's kind of specific. Then again, I can imagine that like in this big organization is not so rare, let's say. Yeah. I just wanted the people listening to know that when he said 80 apps on the page, he said it with a straight face. I just yeah, want- sure, sure. I was curious, if you're talking about, I've heard this term kind of thrown around and I've seen a couple of talks about it, but I still can't honestly wrap my head around it completely. But there's this idea of like micro front end architecture, right? And is that what you're kind of referring to when you talk about having like multiple apps all on the same page run at the same time? No, no, no. So, so this is a very good question because uh, 
So microfrontering is like you have a one shell and this loads multiple spots. And we will get to right. that later. Okay. So that's like microfrontends. That's like the most hip thing and like depends, but sometimes it's a great uh, way to do things. Sometimes it doesn't match. What I was speaking about is like multi-spot. So like to reiterate that, imagine you have like 80 standalone Angular applications who live on their own like context. Got it. Okay. Right. And you're switching between them. Exactly. And as you follow the business flow, you switch between them. So they in isolation can be small, maintainable. You can throw them away, reimplement them with React or with Vue, whatever as you want to evolve or with web components or with Angular 15. Who knows? Like how old it gets. From the consumer point of view, they look like one huge portal, but actually those are independently deployed applications. And currently we have more than 80 of those let's say. And then if those applications share those components, wow. this is when it can happen. Yeah. Right. So now I'm loading up those components every time. There's no caching and I can have multiple versions. Yes. So the caching, maybe that's also kind of issue, but usually you have a good network in the enterprise environment. But the problem sure. is this, okay. these multiple versions. This can really like... Uh, make your day a bad experience when you are dealing with some kind of like synchronization bugs when like this is a bit older kind of state and then like to get an overview because you know the version of the of the apps or the, the applications themselves which are deployed but do you know every version of every sub-library of every deployed application, stuff like this. So it gets pretty complex. Yeah, that's a nightmare, yeah. Exactly. So we, we built like some kind of like custom dashboard to actually track these kind of things but uh, yeah. In this kind of situations, you can really get a big wins using elements. Because once you are using an element, or like any kind of web component, basically doesn't need to be Angular element, but I mean, Angular element is like just, just easier to write than uh, vanilla web components. Suddenly, you don't have a dependency on the library, so you actually don't need to rebuild anything. And the component itself is deployed as an element somewhere as a bundle. And those consumer applications just consume it as a URL. And because it's like this, if I deploy this document dossier or whatever that is as a new version, all these paths will get it immediately because the URL stayed the same. So my question is, I'm sitting here listening to this and I'm thinking, I don't need this necessarily. All right. But some people do. So what's my litmus test? Like what questions can I ask myself to be like, oi, should I listen to, should I do what Thomas is talking about? Like, what are the things to ask yourself? What are the scenarios I can look for to say, oh, it might be time to get into what Thomas is talking about? That's a very good point. So for this one thing in particular, like the first question is, am I in this multi-spot scenario. So I am having multiple independent applications running, which kind of look the same and are implementing business flow, which you just like switch from one app to another. So that's like the first thing. Second thing is, if I am in this scenario, are there some components which are shared across this application? So let's say like a document editor or like a, let's say customer profile or something which is kind of always the same and provides this context in all those applications, it's always the same, but like, you know, you have to display it in these various contexts. So, and in these kind of cases, this may be a good approach. Another thing which we were exploring is like every application had like this header, right? Where you get like some basic stuff like alerts and like maybe like some tasks for a workflow for employees and stuff like this. 
this also usually is always the same in all those applications and can communicate just by like passing some small context in terms of like, okay, this is the case ID or stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So, so how does this compare to, so you listen to Victor's who came on our show and talked about monorepos and how we can share code using libraries. And, you know, they've got this fantastic tool I've used and, and Victor was kind of really talking about called NX. And now that makes it possible to do some of this. How does what you're talking about compare? Like, why did you perhaps, or the companies, the clients that you're working with, choose to go this route versus like a monorepo? And can you share a little bit of that backstory uh, with us? So the thing is, also what was what Victor was saying is, even if you have monorepo and like, let's say you use it with normal Enix, and then let's say you just rebuild and retest like the affected things based on the dependency graph, as he said, like. The, the deployment and the like, uh, like creation of the artifacts and then like the deployment of the artifacts, it's kind of like two separate things in the narrow world, if, as, as far as I remember. So basically, as you run your build, maybe you rebuild the affected projects based on library change, and then the artifacts gets to some repository, whatever can be Docker images, can be just like uh, zip files, whatever that is. And then there is kind of like this separate process where you decide like when to release stuff. Even if you use monorepo and if you don't have like synchronized deployment cycles of all these applications, you can get the same problems. So you still can get to a situation when some application was deployed and some not. If you deploy everything always, you will not have Mm -hmm. this problem. If everything is done with the feature flags only and you always go with everything to prod, you will not have this problem and that will be a solution. In terms of like our organization where I'm currently helping, the decision was based also based on like experience and already like uh, the kind of workflow they were having and like there is some momentum over a couple of years and so on and so on. So like they didn't really have this freedom. Okay, let's now do a total revolution and like go with NX. Got it. So so their starting point was like this huge, huge monolith. It's like all these 80s puzzles were basically inside, right? And then like the first <laughs> first step was kind of like modularize and take it apart to make it at least a bit maintainable. And who knows like what the future holds, but it's like all nice and modularized. Maybe it can be brought back into monorepo. We'll see. Tell us a little bit more about how you're using Angular Elements in these scenarios and and, yeah. and all these projects. I just also want to be clear, all the projects that you're talking about, these 80 spas, they're all Angular applications, right? Yeah. They're not like mixed with React or Vue or... For now, no. It's, it's Angular and like Angular JS and hybrids. Got it. Okay. So I just want to make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying you're doing, just to make sure we're clear. You have like one app that's kind of like the shell, maybe the header and the footer, and then you're loading different apps in the main content or no, 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 no. what are you doing? Are they different URLs entirely or, or, or what, what, what is going on? So I have the same origin and I have a different than after that, after slash I have different contexts and there is like some proxy and those are 80 standalone Angular applications. There is okay. no. Sh- so like myapp.com slash a myapp.com user editor case product, whatever that is. Okay. Multiple right. spas. And they implement business flows where we navigate from one another using hyperlinks because they all live on the hyperlinks. And just, just so I understand, each hyperlink will do a full page load to another spa. 
Right. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm understanding. Okay. But because it's Angular is fast enough because modern Angular can start like in sub-second times. It's like 500 milliseconds. And basically, if you put some static template, which kind of look like this original layout, so that's not a problem. And you're doing this for enterprise. So the, the people are doing this from workstations on like a network connection. Okay. Right. So you've got a bunch of different spas that link to, to each other. And they use similar components. So if I go to like uh, the, you know, the first spa, it might have the same button and the same modal from every other spa. Yes, but I would say it's more like on the level, not like of these atomic components, like a button, but more like on components, customer profile or like a case or like a document editor. So something like a bigger chunk. So bigger chunks too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Instead of sending someone over to a different spa for their customer profile, maybe I just have one customer profile component that can be used among the multiple spas. Because it's usually for this kind of things which you need contextually very often just to be able to do your work. Yeah. And then I'm guessing a lot of, on top of just component sharing, you're probably also sharing like services to do the communication with the back end. So in that particular case, like this, as I said, this component is kind of like bigger. So let's say let's concrete example, like it's like this, this document dossier. So like for a case or for whatever reason, contextually you need some documents. So, and this is implemented using Angular element. So this is totally self-contained. It has okay, its own yeah. backend uh, services. It has its own interceptors and stuff like right. this. Yeah. And all it needs is to get like some small context from the parent, usually like some case ID or stuff like this. And maybe it can pull the case ID out of the URL, maybe. I don't know, right? Like, okay. Or just right. parent pass it through like a standard uh, okay. component input. Yep, yep, through an Angular Elm input. Okay. Exactly. And um, I have this, this customer profile component, like this big reusable Angular element, right? That's kind of self-contained with its services. It knows how to do its own HTTP interceptors. So I have these big reusable shareable components. And to Brian's question... Brian's like, well, why don't you build this with NX so that the customer profile gets built into your bundle? But what you're saying is, I don't want to include it in the bundle. I want to deploy that Angular element to its own URL, and then you just load it real time as the website loads. You don't actually bring it in at build time. You load it at runtime for the client. Is that So those are the two main differences between what... Actually, last week, last week was Victor, right, Ryan? That's right. So that's kind of funny that we have these two kind of, I'm not, I don't know if they oppose each other, but they're different. I don't know if they oppose each other. Complementary, it's complementary. I would say the other kind of approach that I've seen, you know, I know we want to get into kind of how you're actually using this and you're using these structural directives and stuff. The other approach that I've seen, and Victor briefly mentioned it, is, you know, because you're all, all your 80 spas are all Angular, you could go the route of like, oh, I'm actually going to create a library, like an ng library, build that, and then publish that up to Artifactory or a private NPM repository, and then consume that. Again, it would be build time, but you basically consume that by importing that into your ng module and the imports array. You say, bring in this module that does the customer profile. And now I have that app-customer profile available in my Angular application that I can use. But you're not going either of those two approaches. You're saying, let's go with an element that's a custom element, and then we're not even really relying on Angular. 
Exactly. So what you described was our starting point. We okay. as a standard library and we imported all those consumers. And during the build time, it was integrated and that was working quite well. But then there was this problem that even though we could guarantee that they all get all these consumers with this newest version of the library get deployed, let's say, to test environment at the same time, so we don't have any compatibility issues, not all of those applications go exactly at the same time to prod for various reasons. So it's not like perfect uh, continuous delivery or how to call it. Yeah, well, that makes sense. You, you can't deploy all the spas at the same time, right? That, that, that wouldn't make sense. You kind of could if you had really like a perfect process and perfect like feature toggling and all these kind of mm. things in like ideal world, maybe you could. But yeah. in our, at least in our organization, this is not the reality. So some things can go just straight there and some things are like, let's say, released once a week. That's like the longest time. Let's say. But with your approach, I don't have to deploy the spas together because the spas... They're all loading this component from a real, a single production location. So the second I deploy my element, all the spas, whether they've released in the last year or not, are going to get my, my latest thing, right? Exactly. So I'm going to tell you why I like this approach and why I think it's good for some scenarios. I feel like, Thomas, you've embraced the intention of the Web Component API. The Web Component API was made, I think, to load bundles at runtime and not necessarily webpack them in at build time. And so I think that you've embraced that intentionality of that API better than like an NX monorepo bringing in at build time webpack scenario, right? So I like it. I, I, I think it's good in some scenarios, not all, but in the scenarios where it fits, I think this is a fantastic idea. And I love that you've wrapped it up so that other people can use it because these are hard problems to solve, right? And um, I love that if I get in that scenario, I now know you've walked down that path and have a production-ready app that's kind of gone through a lot of the pains that I might have ended up in like instead of having to set my dumpster on fire accidentally maybe you've kind of solved some of those, <laughs> some of those there were some fires too there were some fires uh, i can I, imagine there are fires in the zone where else in the zone <laughs> yeah. that's cool i like this different approach i think it's a good idea I this mean, is cool as you said no like there are different requirements different environments with different sure. histories and like if you are starting fresh maybe you can go for one thing when you have like some like history and like some environment which you cannot just like imagine it's not there maybe this can help it all depends and it's as you said like it's always good to have multiple options to approach like a single problem so and you can like just pick what suits you the best cool hey are you working on a complex enterprise angular application Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. They update the class regularly for the most current Angular, and a lot of the curriculum is also relevant to older versions. Or you can go beyond the three-day class with help from Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. They can assist your team or launch your project, including scalability, data flow, state management, service architecture, full-stack product design, and a ton more. Or you can contact them for a private class at your location or attend public classes in cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. I think this far in the podcast, we've done a pretty good job 
at least I feel like I understand what you're saying. And I hope that we're breaking it down on, on levels where all level engineers of all levels can, can understand this. So my question is, it sounds like you've bundled this up and it's ready for people to, to share what you've done. If I wanted to get in on some of this action, where can I go to learn more about kind of what you've done? As we didn't really get into details yet, but basically like to do this, uh, you have like kind of two options. So one is if you build an element and you serve it like from some URL, you can basically include a script tag with that URL in your like uh, head section or your, of your page. So that it means it loads before you start using that tag in your templates, in your components, in your consumer Angular application. And that will work just great. But this may make your startup time worse because it's all this extra JavaScript you have to load. So and because of that reason, I basically built a library which makes this very lazy and like as lazy as it's possible because it kind of waits for loading of this bundle to the latest possible moment, which is when the uh, component tries to render that element. So it can be not just with the routing that like, okay, I go to some route as is usually standard at Angular. It can be just hidden behind the ng if, for example. So when it's behind the ng if it's not rendered and until you kind of click on some button or some other kind of interaction, which says that condition in the ng if to true, which renders that tag, it will be postponed. The loading of the element bundle will be postponed until that time. And this was implementing the library called Angular extension slash elements, which you can find like on GitHub. And it also has like a docs website with like examples where you can play around. So what it does is like you can basically, there is some showcase where you like, can load in this kind of way, like uh, material web components or like Ionic stuff or like some stencil build stuff, any kind of web component which lives on some URL basically. So you can play around. And there are also like some contributions already for community because it started like very simple that basically you pass the URL of that element bundle into the directive, which does all the work. But this was kind of annoying when you kind of wanted to use an element which is repeated multiple times. And then this URL was like this long string, like in your template multiple times. So there was already a couple of community like uh, pull requests, which, for example, added the feature that you can pre-configure URLs for the tags in your module. So you can have like a lazy elements module for feature. And you say, okay, my document editor tag will come from this URL and stuff like this. There are, is even like more stuff coming. So for example, we want to add the flag that it's possible to set which of those element bundles should be preloaded, for example. Or like, let's say we want to cool. s- specify that uh, when the element bundle is loading, we want to show like a loading template. So let's say some spinner, or in case it fails, we can also show like some error template. And this is already possible like, to specify the directive itself, but we also want to add a possibility to specify this globally, for example. So let me ask a question because I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a scenario where in a really complicated multi-spa enterprise scenario where you have a leg up over, over certain um, kind of the other way, the Webpack way of doing things. So let's say my... I'm on team A and we're building spot A, right? And our spot A is going to use your customer profile component, right? And we're going to load it 
as a remote web component, like what you're talking about. You know, if, if team A, if we're building Angular 8, we haven't upgraded to 9 yet, but your customer profile component is on 9 already. It's okay to have mismatched versioning because it's, it's, it's an it's entire an encapsulated app. Is that true or am I wrong or is that true? You are right. It's totally isolated. In that scenario, I'm ensuring both A, I don't have version conflicts, and B, everyone has the latest version of the component regardless of whether the app is deployed recently. That's right. true. Yeah, so the only only kind of issue you may encounter is related with like the zone JS. So if you are writing like a new Angular element from scratch, I would highly recommend like to go zoneless. And if you're writing something new, kind of can. If you are converting already existing Angular implementation to Element, which is also a valid use case, there are like some possible pitfalls like relating to Zone.js. So basically, it's it's a very contrived, co- like things coming together at the same time. And basically, mm-hmm. you kind of, your, your Element has an input and your parent is setting some values to that input. And that's all right. This works perfectly. And let's say then you are displaying that in your template, in your element, or do some stuff with NGO and changes. This also works perfectly. No problem at all. The problem starts when in that NGO changes, you basically emit a new value of a stream. And let's say that new value of a stream will be then transformed into a backend request. And this backend request will give you some value in some time, short time in the future. This will not trigger a render, unfortunately, because that stream will run in the parent zone, not in the element zone. So this is something very, very specific. Like I basically opened the issue on Agua repository on GitHub. I was discussing this with uh, Gialli Passion or Passion or how, how do you pronounce the guy's name, who is kind of like the maintainer of Zone.js. And he went very like in depth on that and explained why exactly this happens in that issue and that he will like explore further like how to deal with it the best way. But uh, momentarily what he recommends is in those kind of cases, what you can do is to share the parent consumer application ng zone with the element. Child, got it. So you can basically pass it to the child and all these problems disappear. So this is also what we are doing. And this is also documented on the doc website there is also the link to that GitHub issue if you are like interested in the intricacies of like elements, zone, and RxJS, how they come together. You can explore that there if you are but interested. If I've written on push and my input changes and I funnel that input into a stream, into some Rx thing that's going to go to the back end, mm-hmm. and my component has on push turned on, right, for the change detection strategy. Then when that HTTP request comes back and I have used the async pipe, I should re-render. So I wouldn't have this issue if I do it that way, right? So there's ways around what you're talking about, true? No. Uh, so, so unfortunately, the thing is, like, even if you use onPush and even if you use async pipe, actually what async pipe does is there is like this internal call, like change detection mark for changes, but actually, it doesn't work without a zone. You still need somebody to, to trigger the detecting of changes. So like, if you don't want to share, let's say, the parent zone, which is also possible, you can basically include the workaround 
which will call explicit change detector change detector detect changes method. So marking for for changes is not enough. You have to no, no. exactly. And this is exactly the reason why even if you used on push and async pine, which kind of should work, will not work. Like we tried that, unfortunately, it's not the case. So I would need to kind of defensively program this in streams. Yeah, I'd probably need to do some tap that does a change detection, forces the change detection. Exactly. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's the one way to do it. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that would be like a second option. Like if you don't mind this, like instead of like sharing parent zone, like because maybe, but I mean, if your if your parent is not Angular, you don't have this problem at all anyway. <laughs> you cannot run it wrong zone if there is no zone, so that's okay. But yeah, if your parent is Angular and you don't want yeah. to share zone, you can still do this and explicitly trigger the, uh, the, the change. Yeah, uh, I mean, ultimately, if this. <laughs> Detection is only happening, you know, once in a while. And by once exactly. in a while, once a second, that's really not that big of a deal, right? Like, and especially if it's only once per backend request, like that's not going to happen, but once every two or three minutes. So Exactly. So in our case, it was like only once couple of minutes when basically the context changed and we had to load like a different customer profile or something like this. So this yeah. can be even once every 10 minutes or something like yeah. this. So that's not a performance issue at all. No, no. But I can imagine cases where it would be. All right. We got a few more Hello. minutes. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> wait. Did we just get the voice of a ghost? Who is that? Hello. Hello. Is that Peter Bacon Darwin? Who is that? Shai coming oh. to you live from my car in Israel. Oh, nice. Yeah. Welcome. Okay, but continue, continue. You're in the end of the episode. Bye-bye. We're close. We're close. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by, though. Um, all right. So my last question was uh, the Angular elements, I think it's found a great home for, like, ng upgrade. Like, if you're trying to upgrade an AngularJS app, and you're trying to do like a bottom-up approach. And so you, you know, build the, the bottom leaf nodes in Angular, and then you wrap them into Angular elements, and then you consume that with AngularJS. I think that's found a great home there. I haven't heard of too many other people using it because currently the size of those elements is huge because you have to bring in... Yeah. And, 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 and if you even do the router link... You've got in most router, which is huge. And like the angular elements right now are just big. I'm guessing you've done some looking into Ivy to say Ivy is going to change the angular element story by X. How does Ivy affect what you're talking What Like my concern about the bundle sizes. Okay, that's a very good point. So first of all, like currently, let's say Angular 7 or 8 without Ivy, like when you start, like you start like at around 137 kilobytes, like hello world. So depending on the use case, maybe too much, maybe not too much. But as you said, like once you start adding stuff like router and like your own libraries and whatever that is, then it can grow like just like HTTP client, the whole HTTP module, HTTP backend and stuff like this. But the truth is like, yeah, if you, if you like, if you are like in this kind of enterprise uh, environment and you end up like around 300, 400 kilos, it's not such a big deal. Plus, if it's lazy loaded, lazy loaded and is cached by like the server and stuff like this, it's kind of okay. But yeah, like for other use cases, more like in public internet, this could cause issues. So the IV will make this better. So the thing is, 
there is like this amazing article from Manfred Steyer who kind of goes in depth on that. So the thing is, currently in Angular, we have this helper function, which is called like create Angular element or something like this. So basically you pass in a component and it uh, this helper function will do all this heavy lifting for you that it basically wraps that Angular component as a custom HTML element. So it has to do all these like bindings between attributes and then the component inputs and know when to like trigger the change detection, for example. Also a very big feature, what it does for you is it enables you to pass also complex objects, not just like primitive things like strings and numbers, but it allows you to pass in objects and stuff like this. So, and this is done currently, but this is the old style. This is without Ivy and basically the elements will get much better once this helper function create Angular element from a component is implemented using Ivy, which will be an upcoming feature, most likely. And this article, which I mentioned from like Manfred Steyer, is basically exploring how this could look like. So he kind of writes it by hand, this wrapper, with the help of Ivy, and then he gets like to, I think, like 50 kilobytes. Got it. Yeah, and one of the things that like Frosty was bringing up was like you could have Angular elements that are different versions, right? So maybe one's on nine, one's on eight, one's on seven, or whatever it is. You would likely still, I mean, even with Ivy, I guess Ivy's future, anyways. But you'd still be paying that bundle size because you got to bring in the entire runtime, right, of Angular, whatever that is, the HTTP client or whatever you're doing, the router. And so if you've got these different versions, you've got this issue as well. But what you're kind of saying is. is in an enterprise scenario, maybe this solution is a win because it saves money and allows teams to work together and all this kind of thing. They can um, develop in isolation. They can do it. Yeah, they can. Exactly. In isolation without right. having some multi-million dollar deploy system to do all right. that. Right. deployment cycle and plus like you have a caching. So actually caching of element cannot be like with the standard HTTP caching because usually you have like this hash in a file name. But the... Yeah. Element bundle has to always be called the same so you can have like a stable link, right? So, and to do that, you basically have to implement like e-tags on your server. So if you are, a, I don't know right. how people know like the e-tags, but basically it's the way where you make like it's this tiny, tiny request with like the e-tag hash, which was calculated for you beforehand to the, right. to the server. And, right. and the server tells you, okay, this this change or not? So in, yeah. in enterprise scenario, usually you get cached after the first request and then it's just you are cached already. It's just a 304 not modified response. Exactly, exactly. So this yeah. is not really a big deal if you don't have like these millions of new users every day, if it's just this recurring couple of thousands which right. get cached very fast and then it's like no problem. Yeah. One thing I would like to mention before we end, like, so this solution, as we uh, spoke about, like, it's like for this kind of like a sub-application, but actually what is also possible nowadays, like with this library, which we discussed, is to do like a proper micro frontends. And to enable that, like the biggest problem with that was if you, even if you lazy loaded the element, you still kind of had to hard code that element into your Angular template. So you had to say like, mm-hmm. my document editor, and then, okay, you could dynamically set the URL where to load the bundle, but you already had to like commit to that, that in this place, in this template, there will be a document editor or something like this. And this kind of sucks because with the micro frontends, maybe you want to make it really like configurable. So based on whatever, what kind of user, what kind of customer, what kind of context, you yeah. want to load different apps. So right. and this was not really 
matching that well. So there is like this new feature, which kind of is a bit hacky, but it's kind of possible because the directive takes it away from the from the real DOM. It makes it into template. You basically can dynamically set the tag name. And when it puts it back, it will be that new tag which you configured. So for example, document editor. So you start like with a div or with a span or whatever. And once when you put it back, it suddenly will be like my organization document editor. And this works. This works in Angular. And the browser will pick up the tag as a custom element and instantiate it and everything works. So and this really enables you to do fully configurable micro frontends where you can even like load the configuration from the backend or like even pass it like however you like, and then basically build it up through URLs and custom tags wherever you want. So this is already available today using your uh, Angular elements, or excuse me, Angular dash extensions for slash elements package, right? But yes. you said it's a little hacky? Uh, hacky in a way that like, I don't know all the implications of this, all, all, the, all the implications. It's not fully tested, but give it a try. No, 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 it works. It works. That's not a problem. It works. I just don't know if it could break in the future because it kind so, of de- depends on how Angular does ng templates. Ah, okay. So it's tightly coupled to the way Angular does ng templates. Let's put it that way. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. All right. Well, Thomas, I'm, some people listening are going to gravitate to this. You know, they're going to feel the need for what you're talking about. So where can we go to find out more and where can we go to get a hold of you? Right. So if you want to like discuss these kind of things, just speak me on Twitter, like at Thomas Tryan. And the library itself, like, of course, is on the GitHub. So it's like angular-extension-slash-elements. And that's also like the website. So, okay, like the website is also hosted on GitHub. So it's angular-extensions.github.io-slash-elements. I guess we can put the link like in the description of the of the podcast so that they can just click on it. But yeah, yeah. If, you just, if you just Google for angular-extensions-slash-elements, you will definitely find something and there will be more links. Okay. Right? Can you put that into the show, into the chat on the right? Of course. Those two right. right. And then uh, can you also link to your Twitter account? Because we want to make sure people can get a hold of you. Right. Uh, so I think that was great. I actually learned a lot and I appreciate that you came on and took the time to break this down for me. To be honest, before we started, I didn't understand the benefits, but you, you peeled it back in a way that I actually now understand why this would be super beneficial. So I'm going to... Um, Go ahead and uh, give this a try because I think I have a scenario where this might this might work. So I appreciate you coming on and checking it out. So thank um, you very much, man. Thank you very much. Happy to hear that. Let's get on to the picks, Brian. You got some picks. You want to go first? I do. I got a pick. My pick is uh, Node Atlanta and NG Atlanta coming up in February. So I think tickets uh, just are on sale now. So if you want to check that out, you can go online and and grab your tickets for uh, next year's event. Node Atlanta? Yeah, which is combined with NG Atlanta. Uh, if you're already going to NG Atlanta, NG Atlanta, I think, is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then Node Atlanta is going to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And so there's going to be a full stack day in the middle of the week. And oh, cool. so if you're doing Node on the back end and you're doing uh, Angular on the front end, this might be a conference for you to kind of check out. Yeah, that sounds cool. Awesome. Um, <laughs> the voice is shy. <laughs> Go ahead, shy. <laughs> Hunting you. Uh, awesome I've been, I've been listening all the time I've been here you're watching us he's behind you he's behind yeah. you right now he's behind you right now <laughs> <laughs> don't turn don't turn 
<laughs> Shai, Reznik, Reznik, you have any picks, bro? I have one pick. So my pick is a medium blog of Netanel Basal, which is an Israeli angular blogger, which I just finished a meeting with, uh, is, a, is a good friend. And he writes tons and tons of really, really valuable articles on Angular and also uh, does a, a few open source projects. So I will put a link. I will write you when I get back home, uh, Frosty. But uh, it's Netanel and Basal, B-A-S-A-L. That's my pick. Thanks, man. I appreciate you freaking us out and let, reminding us that you're always watching. <laughs> That's me. That's awesome. Uh, all right. So my pick is uh, a lot of people will remember kind of React Gate from a few weeks ago, and one of the things that came out of there was some books that that some people said to read. Tatiana. Books in the React Gate. That's interesting. I didn't know. Yeah. So they, they yeah they said read you know Tatiana Mac was like hey read some of these books. And I felt like, yeah, I need to read some of these books. One of them is my pick. It's called How to Be Less Stupid About Race. And it's on the show notes page if you want to go check it out. But I'm reading this book and like chapter two, I'm crying. And um, it's a real kind of, I don't know. So it's, a, it's an awakening of sorts. It's a hard book for me to process. But it's a good book, I think, for a lot of people to read, especially if you live in a country where people think racism doesn't exist anymore or racism continually is getting downplayed. This book is uh, fantastic. And I'm at a point where I realize I'm realizing right now everything I was ever taught about race in America was not true. And it's hard to process that, like, but... It's a good book is all I'm going to say. I'm going to let other people make their own conclusions, but great, great book. So that's where I'll leave that. Thomas, do you have any, do you have any picks? Right. So to lift it up a bit, or maybe not. Like, so the thing is, you no, know, like I, I grew up like in the, in the nineties, let's say I was a teenager. And at that time, like there was like this genre of music, like called new metal. So maybe some of the listeners are like uh, acquaintance with that. So like stuff like system of down, corn and slipknot. And the thing is, like, Slipknot, like the band, just released a new album, like, 20 years after. And it's actually really epic. I was so surprised. Like, they still, like, really have it, at least from my subjective point of view. So if you are a fan and you didn't listen to it, like, in a long time because it's kind of, like, old, give it a try and, and see, like, if it still does for you, too. <laughs> the new Slipknot album. Yeah. I really like that. Thanks, man. Well, Thomas, thanks for coming on. I had a good time. I feel like I learned a lot. If anyone has any questions, head over to Twitter. Reach out to Thomas Trajan. Trajan is T-R-A-J-A-N. He's just Thomas Trajan. Thomas without an H, just T-O-M-A-S. Ask him questions. He's super responsive. He's one of the Angular GDs who really loves and engages with the community. So feel free to, to pulverize him with questions. So, um, so yeah. Anyway, thanks, thanks for coming for on. <laughs> Yeah, and Brian and Shai, thanks for coming on. And, and remember, always remember, I'm watching you, whoever you are, <laughs> any listener, I'm watching you. In the shower. Yep. No. And to the to the listeners, we'll say thanks for coming, and until next time, peace, peace. Yeah. See ya.
Bye-bye. Adventures in Angular is a devchat.tv production made in partnership with Hero Devs. Hero Devs is a group of Angular experts who can help your team code like true developer heroes. If your team needs an Angular expert, reach out to Aaron at hero.dev today. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.